Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and the Season 2 Pete is unable to be with us today, so joining me is Season 1 Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Let's go. It is not that hard. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for Episode 210, The Red Angel, comes to you now via perchlorate dust-laden atmosphere. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive uh, at the episode. In a week of light news, Deadline reported that Anson Mount and Rebecca Romaine won't be back next season. It's almost as though by the end of this season, they'll return to the Enterprise and start a five-year mission somewhere else, something previously established like 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what some of the consternation online is about this as Anson Mount a more than welcome addition to Discovery he is uh, this was never to be a permanent thing it does open the possibility that if he makes it through unscathed that they could return to that in some way shape or form but at the same time let's remember this is Star Trek Discovery it's not Star Trek Enterprise, I believe there's a couple other shows about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand how this was news, particularly since he himself had, you know, joked, not joked about being an out of work actor. What with the season done, uh, you know, just like Jason Isaacs or just like John Hanna on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., sometimes really important people, really great people are brought onto a show for a closed amount of time. Uh, and and that's that. Um I will add, Pete, Deadline had this little nugget, which maybe was actually why they wrote the article. They just wanted to bury it in the middle. Apparently, there was some sort of yelling match in the summer between him and an unnamed director of the show, and he put his hands on the other person. I don't know if that was, like, in a shoulder pat. I mean, it certainly it, it didn't come off as a punch or anything like that, but HR investigated, and it was nothing, and he apologized, and it kind of sounded a lot of, like, locker room and i don't mean that in a rude way just kind of like it sounded like inside the star trek family there was a disagreement no lines were crossed but but deadline is going to rush to report it oh and he doesn't have a job next season and it was a very weird bit of news that i was completely unaware of um and your your phrase locker room in 2019 you know, we we've we've been there quite a bit, and that concerns me a little bit. That I'd not heard of such a thing tells me it was greatly blown out of proportion. Um, but again, not as if suddenly Anson Mount would be ushered off the show uh, because of such a thing, and not a story dependent uh, decision. So. Yeah, he seems like he won't be around again. Doesn't mean he can't pop back up. Um, and uh, we'll just have to see how things play out. But Matt, with the director of this episode, getting ready to shoot another important episode. Yes, an L.M. Culpepper. Uh Confirmed online this week, Pete, that the unnamed Picard series won't be named Star Trek colon Picard. Um, what's the destiny for that show's title? Time will tell. We have four of the series regulars casts. They are very, very close on the others. There's been next to no news, Matt, about sets, costuming, and given the ramp up that uh, Discovery took, you wonder if that might back things up a little bit. Starting to wonder whether we'll see this in 2019 or whether this will hold to sometime in early 2020, but things are moving and they're not doing it in Toronto. They're doing it in Los Angeles. So things would move at a greater pace. You don't have to take things into the, you know, hinterlands of, uh, Canada. And then there's the exchange rate on, uh, productions, et cetera, et cetera. And now for our mission briefing. A medical tricorder scans the body of the late Commander Arium as Captain Pike conducts her funeral. 
the shot transitions to Tyler and his quarters with his Starfleet issue house arrest bracelet, which Pike and Commander Nan arrive to disengage. In a great practical effect, Arium's cranium is removed to expose her brain encased in glass. As Tilly tells the mourners how Arium fought for her life, her memory data is erased and her friend compares her memories touchingly to a constellation. Stamet speaks of the universe-altering effects of Arium and her husband's meeting as Dr. Culver looks on. Detmer relays how Arium helped her come to grips with her own augmentation. As Burnham begins to eulogize Arium, we see the bridge is empty and on autopilot because nearly the whole crew is in the shuttle bay. Saru sings a beautiful song of remembrance for Arium in the tradition of Kaminar as her coffin is covered with the Starfleet flag, lowered and then sent into space. And Matt, we should point out from Doug Jones himself, that song was actually sung by him. Pete, he's a he's a singer, he's a dancer, he's an actor, he's a makeup guy. He is so much, of course. Uh, this scene also incredibly poignant and one that had the added sad deliciousness of Spock is watching a funeral very similar to the one that he himself will get in the future of our Star Trek past. Um, and uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way. Uh, I think that we have a little bit in this first part of the story, a little bit of some writerly hand-waving, uh, and a little bit we'll talk about the unseen fate of Section 31 base and some other particulars there. Also here, I think there might have been an argument to be made, you know, is there discussion, could you have written discussion about, um, oh, Ariam has no family, or her will had her to be, you know, buried in space, uh, that sort of thing. I mentioned this just because it briefly crossed my mind. Doesn't she have people at home who would like her remains? Uh, that said, I don't think the narrative suffers for not answering those questions. In a turbo lift, Tyler apologizes to Burnham for the loss of her friend and she to him for being confined to his quarters for so long. She can feel what he's trying to do, but is upset Tyler is still loyal to Section 31. In Pike's writing room, a review of the events that led them there is held. Burnham explains Arium was infected by the future AI and forced to copy sphere data and transfer it to control so it could evolve, which they stopped. Spock tells Admiral Cornwell the future is the variable. Saru says they understand the future AI only infected Arium and control and that Arium's neural system was erased before her funeral. Control's station was also destroyed off screen and all Section 31 ships have run successful diagnostics. Are you sure, Pete, that they're all 100% clean, that the, that the uh, virus software itself doesn't have a virus? Oh, don't, don't even mind my question, Pete. I'm sure <laughs> that's no worry there. Pike urges caution that the AI could have sent itself elsewhere and is laying in wait. Just then Tilly interrupts as only she can and reveals that in scanning Arium's system, she has found a file implanted there called Project Daedalus, which was implanted by a digital parasite. The file contains a bio-neural signature of the Red Angel, Michael Burnham. Astonished gasp as we head into the credits, which show the full complement of regulars, that's Latif and Cruz included, along with special guest star Michelle Yeoh. The episode was written by Chris Silvestri and Anthony Marinville and directed by the aforementioned Hanel M. Culpepper. After the credits, we get a wonderful arching shot of the saucer section, something worth rewatching many times to concern yourself about things like uh, room placements and window views and things of that sort. Uh, we end up get take, getting taken into sick bay, where Dr. Culber 100% confirms that the Red Angel is definitely Burnham, and no one listens to Cornwell wondering if maybe the data from Arium was somehow <laughs> bogus. Yeah. 
but Spock sees no logic in a false positive. Culber says that a fake would have read too perfectly, and he, who is not yet officially reinstated, Matt, uh, would have caught it. But Pike's concern is confirmed by Spock's assessment that his foster sister's profile would take responsibility for actions, for situations beyond her control. The Red Angel's suit was emitting tetrionic uh, radiation, which, of course, would limit traditional communication and sensors. They recap three of the seven signals have been investigated, with four left to reveal themselves. Hey, Matt, how many episodes are left in season two? Uh, wait a minute, Pete, it's four. What? Thank you for sharing that with us, Pete, said in the Burnham style. <laughs> um, they get told, well, as they ruminate, that there's a Section 31 vessel on the way. Pretty quickly, Captains Leland and Giorgio beam in. Pete, we barely get to see the visor-wearing transporter guy. It's almost like we're being driven by characters here, not some sort of slavish dedication towards filling up memory alpha or something. Uh, but they have a solution in hand, kind of almost a mission of the week, if you will, time to set a trap for the Red Angel and make it work for us. In the ready room, it's recapped that the Red Angel may be appearing with some sort of tether to future AI. That, of course, must be stopped. Got to keep that AI away. Leland also shares that the Klingons had explored time travel to wipe out humanity. And Project Daedalus was Section 31's response. The Red Angel is a suit of Federation design. Yes, and they had believed that the suit had been destroyed by Klingon spies. But once the signals began to appear, they started to formulate a plan to get the suit back without harming the individual using it, of course. Again, it is mentioned that they're going to set a trap. And uh, the best way is to close the time travel wormhole. Burnham finds some logical gaps in the story. At least she says that to Leland and that she needs to find out more from Leland later on. But of course, Pete, she's not the only one looking to jump into this project. Yes, Saru volunteers to assist Leland with his calculations. We get an act break, then Giorgio and Burnham have a walk and talk. Shouldn't Burnham know more since it's her life on the line? Philippa pushes Burnham to Leland, who she suggests has more information. And I think we can all bet this is part of some sort of machinations uh, to unfold in the future. In engineering, Stamets analyzes the Red Angel suit and its use of inherently unstable micro wormholes. The suit generates a membrane, a protective layer that travels with her, with one end staying in the future as an anchor to snap her back home. Tilly says their phase discriminators will hold the Red Angel in place so she can't snap back to the future. Then they'll lower her to a platform where an electromagnetic pulse will disable the time crystal that powers her suit. A containment field will then hold her so that they can question her. Georgiou thinks this Stamet may be smarter than the one she knew and much more neurotic. Has he considered medication? Notice, Pete, behind the humor in this scene, this is also setting up audience understanding of how the trap will be set later in the episode. We also have a lot of language in this scene and in the first half of the episode, uh, whether it is the rubber band that snaps things back or, you know, a mouse in the trap, put the cheese in the trap, snap the trap, things like that. So amidst all the other stuff in terms of tachyon particles and gravity wormholes and politics with the Klingons and all of that, we still have this really solid understanding of, you know, the Red Angel has a bungee cord to the future. We're going to sever the bungee cord and then put a glass bowl over her. And, you know, we have that basic understanding. Uh, Culber at this point arrives looking for Cornwell. Uh, there's all sorts of tension in the air, male tension. Giorgio is flirty with Stamets and Poppy Culber, too. Uh, and she says in their universe, they had so much fun together. Def Con level fun, Matt. Uh, I would argue this is a top exchange all time in the history of Star Trek. This is clearly the greatest scene in this episode, action and suspense aside. 
Um, indeed, there's even the Giorgio, stop talking now, with the three fingers brought to one point, like close the mouth kind of, kind of motion there. Um, Giorgio, having left all of this up in the air, leaving everyone in their wake, she does mention uh, time to focus on what's in front of them. Elsewhere in the halls, Non and Burnham catch up. Non says that uh, in regards to the death of Arium, Non was just doing her job, and she would have been proud to know the real Arium. Saru and Leland work together where he explains they have to close the Red Angel's wormhole as quickly as possible before the AI can infiltrate it. Got that yet again, Matt? Discovery's graviton beam is not powerful enough, which is why Leland testily says he'll close it from his ship with Tyler's help. Leland cuts to the chase and asks Saru if Pike decided he needed a monitor. Saru says he chose to work with him so he could assess Leland's trust. Even without his threat ganglia, he still has strong instinctive reactions. He believes Leland will work to protect both crews and that there's much he hasn't told them. Pete, could you say that in this scene, Leland is not a chuffed captain? Uh, <laughs> I like, too, how Doug Jones, when it's time to to say that Leland is not sharing enough, uh, Doug Jones physically closes the space between the two mm -hmm. of them. Uh, it's great on camera. I think it's also just a very you know human thing to do. Not that Saru is human. Please don't misunderstand. Just in terms of the, the acting of it, it's a great moment. Just as there's this moment of... These two men are closer and disagreeing. Burnham arrives, uh, breaking up the tension, or at least seemingly so. Severu leaves, and she says that she has a right to know everything about the mission at hand. And Leland, in what I would say is a pretty uh, measured yet heartfelt and believable moment, he fesses up completely. He knew her parents, who worked on Project Daedalus. They were placed on Doctari Alpha to work on the project. They were not pure scientists. They worked black ops. They made the suit. They needed a time crystal. One had been stolen from the Klingon homeworld, which Leland calls Quonos. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the Klingons traced it back to Doctari Alpha, the conclusion being that Burnham's parents died because of Project Daedalus, which Leland was overseeing. Some interesting stuff here. So Burnham recaps her father was a xenoanthropologist like she's become. Her mother, an astrophysicist, which Leland says uh, she was also a brilliant engineer. Um, there's also the technological leaps that the suit was created because of their theory. Uh, massive technological leaps, the possibility of time travel interference as I hand you this thing from the future, Matt, which you did not have, which you now have. It's almost like, Pete, they were fans of a different science fiction program called Stargate SG-1. Or that's the Star Trek Voyager that had a 1996-centric plot revolving uh, around this. And they went back and met Sarah Silverman at, uh, at uh, the Griffith Observatory? Is Sarah Silverman the Red Angel? Uh, wow. Pete, so many questions here. Does that make Princess Vanellope the Red Angel or somehow in Star Trek, it's mirrors on top of mirrors. But if, if, if you're feeling overwhelmed by all this time reflection stuff, Pete, so is Burnham. Despite Leland outright apologizing, uh, she palm punches him twice, once uh, for each parent and, uh, Certainly a, a an unusual show of emotion and aggression on Burnham's part. Burnham confronts Tyler on if he knew what Leland did and asks him if he can live with what Section 31 does. He does not always agree with their tactics, but he trusts Section 31's mission. Pete, that sounds like a log line for a great show. I don't always believe in their means, but they help a lot of people in space. Culber avails himself of Cornwell's counselor background. He's never felt more alone. She acknowledges he's new and that it's natural for him to feel the way he does. She also tells him love is a choice made again and again, a really great line, and that the only way to make a new road is to walk it. 
said out loud in this recap, Pete, both lines sound somewhat cliched, but between Jane Brooks uh, acting and presentation of that line and just the way it impacts both of the characters in the scene, it really, really feels heartfelt. Uh, in the ship's gym, Burnham is boxing with a dummy. Spock arrives, contextualizing her anger as understandable, but also says that Burnham as the Red Angel is not logical, uh, but that's mixed in with him reflecting that hitting Leland would have been satisfying for Spock as well. Burnham ultimately calms down, and Spock says that the failure of emotion and logic is always uncomfortable. He shows sympathy for her past, noting that she was only a child when she came into his home, and he accepts her apology. Uh, but ultimately, Spock is here with news. Pete, what news is it? He's really come to see her because he's ascertained the variance in the signals. Exciting stuff there. And we move on to the shuttle bay where work on the trap continues. Uh, Pete, luckily they had some of those old style, uh, what was it? The, the, the vertical, horizontal, what was it? The, the old style transporters, those, those dome things help make the trap go here. You mean from the transporter set of the Shenzhou? Yes, those lateral vector uh, transporter things. And Pete, it's a standard uh, energy dome thing. A lot of ships carry them, okay? It's not a reuse of props, all right? Back off. Burnham tells Pike and Georgiou they can set the trap now via the grandfather paradox of saving her own life. She's the bait. They must let suffocate in the planet's inhospitable atmosphere in order to lure the Red Angel. Pike and Georgiou protest, but Burnham and Spock say Culber will be there to revive her, but they don't even think they'll need him. This scene here, particularly with Pike's protestation, I think it's a little bit of a reminder of a, a thread we had picked up on last week where these individual episodes don't always know what to do with Pike aside from him kind of being there. And I'm not certainly not being critical of Anson Mount. I'm not necessarily being critical of the writing. I think there's a reason why this is the captain for this season and not the Kirk, the Picard, the great leader, the father, the brother, the best friend that we all wish we had, that kind of thing. Because in this episode, Pike is largely rubber stamping other people's plans and Think, you know, I think again, I think there's an argument to be made why this is not the long term solution for leadership on the show, just because he's swept up by the emotional nature that that other people have towards Burnham, towards the importance of this. And of course, he has to say something like it is in direct opposition to his oath as captain. But of course, he's also going to go with it. The decision to base this show around a non-captain character for the first time. I mean, every show is so quickly identified by this is the one with Kirk. This is the one with Picard. This is the one with the female captain, et cetera, et cetera. And presumably that the, the show follows Burnham's ascendancy to captain. I have no problem with the way Pike was used in this episode or at any point throughout this season. And I think you know, the, the fan reaction to that being a little misguided of don't take Pike away from us when he was always a, a catapult to move the story further. We've had the negative captain, the militaristic captain ultimately revealed uh, to to be this horrible mirror universe uh, person. Now we've had the benevolent non-Kirk father figure captain these are all templates for burnham to draw the best and the worst from and to further her understanding before she ultimately winds up in the chair you describe the best story reasons for his presence and indeed the the variety of captains that we've seen her experience I'll just return to again, there is also this canonical thing that the enterprise finished a five year mission this year. Uh, underwent, uh, underwent uh, refit and and whatnot, had a little downtime, presumably shore leave, et cetera, then went on another five-year mission. This is all, this, this is stuff that, that was established 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, and the show is just playing in that space, period. 
Over Esau 4, Spock lays out the mission on the planet with the wildly fluctuating temperatures and lethal perchlorate dust atmosphere over a montage of the Section 31 facilities, antiquated atmospheric generators, and the crew beaming in and setting up the equipment. They're going to the ninth circle of hell to capture a red angel. We see the chair being bolted down, the one meant for Burnham, and it is mentioned Pete, because now I can only see story clocks now that you've opened my eyes to it. Uh, it's said that that uh, she will be allowed to be in that precarious position for exactly two minutes, because after two minutes, not 159, not 201, that is when death will occur. And uh, we get the reminder that this must be done to save all sentient life. Burnham goes to see Tyler before the mission proper starts. Can they depend on each other? It would seem so as they kiss. She says she's scared. And I have to admit, Pete, this was a scene that was a little out of left field for me. Not because they haven't had a relationship before. They have. But I guess I bought into the space between them, the anger, the, you know, I think of him walking away at the end of the first season. I kind of bought that emotional walk away, even though fate has brought them into close proximity again. It's a scene about stakes, Matt. And though we have the greater stakes of all sentient or sentient life in the universe uh, being extinguished, this is about the lives of, of two people, two people who were in love, have now been cast at odds and coming back together here and with only four signals left in the season matt time to get on the same page with those who used to be speaking of two lives intertwined pete on the bridge sarah midich's lieutenant nilson takes her place as the new old new spore drive operator of course i'm sure the entire audience remembering that midich played arium in season one and uh, has not for season two in the time that Hannah Cheeseman played the role. It was a really well done moment. And again, the, the cost of what they've been through, the things would carry weight. Um, and imagine a service person taking over for somebody who had uh, perished in their duties in light of what had happened in the previous episode. It, it's handled appropriately. On the planet, Culber tries to talk to Stamets, speaking of emotional weight, but it's not the time. It might never be the time. It's a touching moment. I feel like, for my money, Pete, while it is emotionally true, I feel like it is slightly shoehorned into the scene. I know why you need the doctor there. I guess he's on full duty now. And even if he's not, I understand, you know, you're going to have Wilson Cruz not the actress that plays the other doctor. I understand why Stamets is there. I understand there's this trouble between the two of them. I guess in that particular moment with the fate of all sentient life uh, at stake and more immediately Burnham's life at stake and all of this, I personally don't buy that that discussion would be broached right then and right there, even though you have to have that moment somewhere, I guess, in this episode I don't know. To me, it was just ever so slightly a misfit. I'm going to disagree. And for a writer's take on it, not that Matt's not a writer. He is. We've written together. Um, but this is a placeholder for continued development. Obviously, the discussion that Colber had with Admiral Cornwell, um, the Stamets-Colber relationship and things moving forward. This is the reverse rubber band, Matt. This is the slingshot into the next episode. Pete, in this moment of pained interaction between the two of them, you get from afar Giorgio watching, I dare say gleefully. Uh, maybe gleefully because it is the spark of love reunited. Maybe it's gleefully because it is the spark of chaos introduced. But Giorgio then pivots and gives Burnham a pep talk, saying that she's ready to pull her out. She also takes a little bit of a victory lap, ever so subtle, for pushing Burnham uh, to get the truth out of Leland. Uh, again there, Pete, a little reminder, Giorgio loves to push here, tug there, cause chaos, and then, I don't know, meet whatever the next step is with uh, less competition along the way. The slightest hint of mischief, of mayhem in that look, 
over clad in her all black section 31 spacesuit. Kudos again to Gersha Phillips. She just constantly raises the bar. Um, and this Georgiou Burnham moment then leads us into Spock walking Burnham out. Tyler, uh, you know, contacts her on the communicator uh, and she knows Ash before she's about to breathe it. She asks Spock, what if it doesn't work? And in a wonderful just moment that is so true to the character, Spock says, well, he would be charged with the killing of Starfleet officer again. So it's ideal that she doesn't survive. Uh, Pete, the spirit of Leonard Nimoy was in that moment. Ethan Peck not imitating uh, Nimoy, or maybe it wasn't even Leonard Nimoy. Maybe it was just Spock, the product of Nimoy, the product of Peck. It, it, it was a perfectly distilled moment of this character. How lucky and, and you know, really daunting for those to attempt to recreate what Leonard Nimoy brought in the original incarnation of the character. This, of course, something that occurs before the Spock that we all have come to know and love and, you know, yet still has to resemble what he will be. And I dare say they nailed it. There's tension in the air. Burnham, after a pause, gives the word. The timer has started and the roof opened. Not only is it unbreathable, but it burns. It burns! Her O2 levels are falling. And uh, Tilly, after a little prompting, because she's watching the Star Trek Discovery on the main viewer there, uh, Tilly notes that there's no tachyon-level spike to indicate a save. Burnham gasps, variance, and Spock holds everyone in that control room uh, to phaser point. Giorgio wants to get Burnham out. Spock will not allow it. Meanwhile, Pike doesn't like what he's seeing. He orders an end to it, but Spock, of course, still has already put a, a stop to it, and it's status quo for the moment. Yes, Pike orders Ops to beam Burnham out, who's flatlined right to sickbay, but there's too much interference. Tachyon interference. A massive surge. The red signal appears, and Leland orders his ship to intercept. The Red Angel resuscitates the flatlined Burnham with a beam, and they trap it. In his ready room, Leland authorizes a security buffer override as he looks into some kind of telescope. But the system's offline. He hears his words repeat, and a needle shoots out of the device, puncturing his left eye, which the camera languishes on for a moment. On the bridge, Leland's voice tells Tyler he should have the power he needs now. And he closes the wormhole. Is it a telescope or is it perhaps some sort of retinal security scanner? Regardless, Pete, he had to lean in a lot to get that really long, albeit quick, but really long stabby thing that I'm sure is just stand, come standard with scanners or telescope viewers. The Red Angel is increasingly pulled down. Uh, an EMP gets fired to disengage the suit. Interesting visual moment as it first appears, at least to my eyes, it looks as though the person and the suit had been cut in half. Uh, but instead we see someone falling out of the suit, the suit upright, wings pulled in, the body face down, uh, a knowing actress not revealing her, her face to the camera, uh, all as the containment field is dropped. The Red Angel slowly looks up. The camera pushes in. We get the reverse angle on Burnham saying, Mom, to end the episode. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Let's start with Leland, who who uh, may or may not be RIP, but we'll save the RIP part for the theory segment. Let's talk about Leland as a threat. The full disclosure now of how he knew Burnham's parents out of the way, his seeming guilt, uh, you know, given, disclosed, what have you, um, I think makes him less dastardly. And he acknowledges he was ambitious. He was young. He was careless, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
Yet there's the things we still don't know out of a Section 31 captain that will only be part of further reveals. That's if he's around or someone else is to make them. I feel like I have a soft spot for the guy in that anytime that he's tried to be genuine like this, I, yeah. I tend to buy it. Um, he's affable, and I think the, a really smart decision to make him friends or former friends with Pike, uh, who who you just want to serve under, um, and that Pike has trusted somebody like this, and and now they're at odds. Just further complicates their their simple yet eloquent uh, character choices. I think he too summarizes why I'm so interested in the Section Thirty One show. Albeit, you know, we we may find next episode the character is dead, and you know, obviously, uh, George O is going to be the the lead character on it, but. This whole tension that the show that this show keeps returning to in terms of doing these things in the gray so that the happy black and white existence, mostly, you know, white and bright and shining and full bellies and happiness that the Federation has, that it's done at this behind the scenes cost. It's a really, really interesting tension and one that I feel Leland has mastered, that the presentation of Leland has, has really mastered. But Pete, of course, he might be curtains and we might be getting more control. So is control back? It's hard to tell in the context of this episode, the idea of the future AI that the control's been infected. Of course, control's been wiped of it, Matt, and re-engaged. And, you know, that station that was blown off completely uh, off screen, you know, it really simplifies that. But it's this time conundrum chicken or the egg type of thing and with what goes on in Leland's ready room not fully clear to us whether it's there whether it's still lurking out there we also get Giorgio up to just these delicious moments as we discussed in the recap where an argument can be made that in both cases of being naughty, the the Stamets and Culver interaction, as well as the, you know, sending uh, sending Michael Burnham to Leland, that she was acting for the good. But I, I feel like I can only sleep with one eye open when she's around. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> you know, to what degree is she just setting up chaos because she suspects she knows how the pieces will fall? Her ascendance is very very clear she's said it a number of times that she wants leland out of the way she said it to him how he can even allow her uh i I think that's why the the scene of um him recruiting her from season one works best deleted instead of in the body of these episodes because no way this character would want to go recruit her now. Side note, Pete, they need to put that scene like as a secret scene at the end of season one or something like that, just so that it's part of the, uh, I was almost going to say canon, but I don't mean that in the, in the Star Trek sense. So it's officially kind of part of the record in terms of, oh, there's this thing that's, that's, that's connected. Although I guess it wasn't in a recap as well, maybe the season one recap, but I digress, Pete. Do we have Mother Burnham, secret agent, as a villain in this episode? I mean, there's a whole bunch to talk into as far as theories are concerned there. Uh, That she's in the suit doesn't make her the Red Angel. This with all the bio-neural matches made early in the episode that could in no way be faked or too perfect or what have you. Um, but that she comes in, that she has technology that would resuscitate her daughter, that there's some reason for her being there that's not clear beyond the bait of her daughter's fate in the balance. Turning things ahead to long-range sensors, Pete, talking some theories here. Uh, let's start with one a bit immediate. Burnham's response to Leland. I know he takes that punch in part because, A, he's a Section 31 guy living on the fringe, and maybe he had it coming too, but 
isn't that conduct unbecoming an officer? And isn't she lucky that there's not a future episode where he writes her up and she ends back in prison again? Tells me a lot about his sincerity. It also, from a story standpoint, potentially signals that's the end of him, that he's He's really paid a price, and then he pays the ultimate price later in the episode. Matt, if this was lost, we would have had a flashback. <laughs> and he probably would have died at the end. Uh, let's stick with the topic of his death, uh, You know, by which I mean Leland and Lost, not Leland in this episode. Um, the first time I watched this episode, obviously, you know, Pete, we joke when somebody gets shot with a handgun, once they live, twice is dead. Uh, I guess one can extrapolate the same for phasers um but when i first saw the really long needle that is shot into his eye and presumably behind it into the optical nerve the brain whatever i was like all right he's dead and then re-watching maybe not you know watching through my fingers quite as much at the shock of his death uh he falls to the ground he still is twitching a bit and the discoloration in his eye seems to disappear so something's going on yeah i don't he may be dead as leland and that it seems his voice then tells tyler a second later oh you have the power of grayskull which is my non-canonical name for the section 31 ship captain by leland to uh to close the wormhole um yeah certainly i think it sounds like we both agree that there's there's gonna be more than oh my goodness captain leland is dead uh we're gonna get more than that in robo uh, pirate leland matt is is what i'm really looking forward to come on to a one-eyed uh control controlled uh section 31 captain Come on, that, that's like you, you couldn't draw it up better in a, in a writer's room if you wanted to. Maybe harken back to Star Trek VI, have a, uh, a strapless uh, cover Bolted over the eye there, in. strapless patch, yeah. Yeah. Um, Pete, we see Lieutenant Nilsson hit the bridge, Sarah Medich back. I know when, back whenever ago, I want to say close to a year ago when it was announced that there was a new actress for Arium, most people's response was, oh, the original actress probably doesn't want to spend all that time in latex or has a better job offer ahead or something like that. Um, do we have Lieutenant Nilsson back on the show for good or was this just a fun little fun little nod back to the actress's time on the set? Uh, is, is Nilsson going to be pushing the bleeps and the bloops on the spore drive that it seems we use less and less? Will we get more of her in the future? I sure hope so, that they retained her that they brought in another actress then to play Arium and, and gave this big, you know, feature spot before they kill the character off, who I don't think we can be completely confident or sure is is done on the show or this season. We erased her, Matt, so clearly there's no more memories or no more AI or no more sphere data or any of those things and wait uh, where's the corpse again it's been sent out into space like that that's a giant red herring still out there could be exactly as they're telling us this is a science fiction drama however and there remains the ability to if not this season as something connected to the rest of the story maybe matt next season's all about the the blue robot Pete, surely you're not suggesting that a character such as Arium could have some sort of moment where she has to remember or get rid of her memories or transfer her memories and then get shot out of a torpedo casing casket into the stars. There's no way a character could come back <laughs> from that. Uh, memories separated from the body, the body now gone. I mean, come on, Pete. Star Trek could never do something like that. She's really not dead. As long as we remember her. What theories are on your sensor scope there, Pete? So Burnham, not the red angel, this digital parasite that injected the file that Tilly tells us six minutes into the episode. Of course, with that, we probably even then before even Cornwell voices like, can we be sure this is the thing? Had to be thinking 
it wasn't going to be Burnham in the suit. I have to admit that when Burnham's mother fell out of it and he saw the long hair, I'm like, this is it. They're they're going to age Sonequa Martin green and she's going to have this really cool, tense conversation with herself. Will she be she be scarred? Yeah, okay. scarred she's, down the cheek. Yeah, she's got the long hair. Will she will she give a warning to herself? Like, remember, listen to Spock and Tyler and watch out for Pike beep boop, you know, whatever. And they, they, they got us, Matt. I didn't see anywhere. Apparently you did see someplace that it would be her mom. Uh, I did not. The, the, okay. the thing I had tweeted of the, the theory I didn't see coming was, uh, was in that first six minutes of the episode where, you know, the red angel is Burnham. I, I think that all crossed everybody's mind way back when, but that was something I had not seriously considered. Pete, you had offered a thread in our threats segment that I, I want to pick up on here. Is it possible that the Red Angel has been Burnham, except for this time Mom got the suit? Whatever that behind-the-scenes story might be, can it have been both? Can it have been will be both that... It's been Burnham for these times when the the, the bio scans have been recorded, yeah. but for the latest mission, it was Mother, and that there was delay in it showing up and why it may have shown up. And if you kill Burnham, Burnham can't show up, and it it does begin to to bend the mind. That the mother, for the first time we've heard now, was an astrophysicist and an engineer. Okay, so the ability to manipulate micro wormholes and to build and to understand a suit that this was done Leland says to attempt to understand leaps and technology so why we have an iPhone is this a, as a result of a red angel that a time crystal Matt do we know anybody who's ever possessed a time crystal uh Harry Mudd and Thanos <laughs> so people <laughs> I don't think One's going to appear in the story. If he does, this might be the greatest crossover of all times. Uh, and then allow Pat Oswalt to really, you know, get things cooking. But um, I, I hope somehow Mud is going to cross this story with four episode signals still out there. That the supernova energy, even with the family that was killed, that Burnham's borne the guilt of for all these years seems to somehow be connected in this story. I guess the biggest question is how can Burnham witness the Klingons kill her parents and her mother show up? Doesn't that definitively set an end date on her mother or is it just you heard one uh, disruptor thing through the little grate? Mom really you know, uh, got herself to safety and, and now has, has shown up. Well, I, I think we have another answer that comes in the form of time travel. There's a lot of discussion in this episode. In fact, I would argue all of the discussion that we've had regarding time travel this season has been somebody from the future coming back to the Red Angel's past, right? And if that then sets up older Burnham who is going back to do this to do that so be it but I guess what we're not figuring is is it possible that in Burnham's childhood her mother in testing out the suit went to the future sometimes and explored things in the future and somehow you know because what how long ago was the Klingon attack would you say 20 years ago 25 years ago yeah, yeah. um I mean yeah they float that that approximate 20 year Thing in the episode so it's possible that mom checked out in the far future oh no burnham dies and maybe mom this entire time has known hey there's a fixed uh a fixed point on the timeline that uh the, the burnham parents must die but in the interim she's going to be the best mother she can be and save her daughter countless times in the absence of her parents still knowing that mom has to come home after the final jump and meet death either at a known point or meet, meet death at some unknown point, but it's not going to be when her daughter is, you know, is, is an adult. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. 
Pete, as always, we have a Twitter poll to share here. Uh, the four choices, one star, inhospitable air, two stars, torpedo to the heart, three stars, I, E-Y-E, I-I, Cap'n, and four stars, Mamma Mia. Uh, no votes for the one star choice. 8% said two stars, 23% said three stars, and 69% said four stars. Uh, add um, Robert T. Frost, Matt, via Facebook with a 2.5 out of 4 to that Twitter poll. He writes, What brought the episode down for him was the main storyline's logic, or perhaps Spock not fully following his own logic. He cites the grandparent paradox. If Burnham dies, how can she become the Red Angel? But what about the present-slash-future person paradox? How can they set a trap for the future Michael Burnham with the present Burnham knowing she is setting a trap for herself. The future Burnham would slash should know what our present day Burnham knows and circumvent the situation. A resolute Spock holding everyone at bay doesn't work either because that would be known in the future too. A memory wipe would be convenient, but that's never mentioned. So second, why would the Section 31's optic reader have an eye needle? Is 31 that paranoid about their own people? And if not, how would the AI manipulate or construct an eye needle into an optic reader? Third, Tilly. The impassioned, emotional, caught-up-in-the-moment Tilly has been presented one or two too many times. That kid needs to get her head out of her duffel bag and into the game like right now, or she would be invited off the bridge very soon. The good stuff. The Red Angel is Mother Burnham. Pulled the episode out of the logic fire. Uh, two, all the personal interactions the episode gave us. Arium's funeral, eulogies, Culber, Stamets, Burnham, Spock, Saru, Leland, Georgiou, Stamets, Culbertilly. Uh, crying, uh, laughing emoji. My favorite was Dr. Culber and Admiral Cornwell when she gets to dust off her old therapist skills and help a very struggling, conflicted Culber. The episode's best line, love is a choice, Hugh, not just once, but again and again and again. Till next episode, your friend, Bob. Regarding Tilly having her eye off the ball, I would agree that come Discovery Season 7, that stuff should have long been gone. I think in the interim, this is perhaps a handful of months since she was made an ensign. Um, maybe even less so if we kind of count up missions back to back, that kind of thing. So I think she still is green enough where maybe you shouldn't have an ensign on the bridge doing some of this high level stuff in a, in a situation where, you know, she somehow is not the best uh, suited skill wise. So, you know, ensign X would not be at her station. Tilly is because of her great intellect and knowledge and whatnot. Um, also, Tilly is kind of the, the proctor for the audience and, you know, I think the story is giving into that, if nothing else. Regarding the eye needle, Pete, I'll just say this. Uh, does your car have C4 explosives hidden in it? It does not. But a James Bond car does because it's a spy car with spy gadgets that might need to be blown so bad guys don't get a hand in it. So I would agree that the average optical reader on the average star ship is not going to have a conveniently placed eye needle and look, is it there primarily for story reasons, you know, and for a shock in this? Yes. But I could see how Section 31 has put one into each optical reader in case the worst thing, you know, worst case scenario happens or whatever that might be. It's not a fully formed theory, but, you know, if the person's head gets in the wrong hands or that kind of thing. Pete, let's head back to Twitter here for Annie Harrington, who says as follows. I'm very glad that Burnham is not the Red Angel after all. That seems too obvious slash easy slash superhero movie-esque. Although Spock did make the idea considerably more palatable when he made, her, made it about her thinking she is rather special than actually being special. 
And he goes on to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode especially. Spock's jabs about Burnham feeling responsible for everything. Two questions, though. Why couldn't they beam Arium out of space in time to save her like they did with Tyler last season? It would have been easy to blame it on augments or not being Klingon, but it was not addressed. Also, why were they so sure it was Burnham when it was only someone closely related to her? I'm hoping we still get an explanation for that. Well, Pete, I know we've discussed the second one there, but your thoughts on not saving uh, Arium in those moments before death? I think there were enough story conceits. You had the blackout mines. You had the spinny death mines. I think there was too much peril introduced by the writers to wall off. We could beam her in and save her again. Wait, there has to be cost. Now that cost can be undone if Arium comes back into the story, but do we really have a problem? These time travel stories are built upon these types of conveniences to tell a longer tale stretched out. So I would be fine with that if that takes place. I'll mention too regarding time travel. I mean, A, let's not forget it is maybe the most fictional thing in this episode. You know, we have spaceships now. The idea of spaceships that go faster and faster and faster, that's not impossible but we are dealing with this purely fictional thing regarding time travel let's also not forget too that there are the two basic thoughts uh schools of thought for time travel one is the multiverse where it's possible that old burnham let's remove the mom reveal for a moment whatever implication that might have it's possible that old burnham is from a different timeline than this burnham who's told we're going to do the trap that's the one school of thought then the other is you know the the, the one timeline where things change a la your back to the future but uh but pete let's head to jt atkins on twitter i'm having difficulty concocting new kudos for a show that creates heartfelt character drama and exciting twists and turns week after week so excellent star trek discovery excels once again this is a great show plus it's star trek keep them coming jta continues uh, jta is me continues to say spoiler alert Star Trek Discovery, one more thing. Uh, the first season of Alias, that's right, Pete, he invoked a J.J. Abrams show, uh, of Alias ended with the main character tied to a chair saying, Mom, in disbelief, leaving us saying, What? For a whole season break. I tell myself this to help me be patient, but I want that next episode now. As an aside, maybe someone needs to fall down a hole and turn a donkey wheel or something to solve this temporal conundrum. I think there's a lot going on that may not take place, <laughs> but JTA making the connections there across multiple JJ uh, Abrams, uh, you know, TV stories in the past. Um, the the thing with the mom and and where that's ultimately going to go, I mean, I think it's a wild card. It's it's not what we expected, you know, for for the number of serious and you know, comical possibilities people offered up with the Red Angel. I don't recall anybody predicting it was her mother. A couple more tweets here. The first one from Karen Chu. Holy cow, not what I expected. Not how I expected it. Uh, totally enjoyed it. I do love character-driven episodes, and this was pretty much that. Performances were stellar. I still don't really know where we're going, but I love it. And last tweet here is from James. It's at Big Killin. Bold writing choices keep us guessing. It's hard to believe how good the show is. This funeral, you know, you reference Spock being at it. Surely the, the character participated in other funerals before he would have his own. But it, it might be the best funeral on Star Trek apart from his own. Um, and so very, very well done and smart to not do it like his would ultimately happen. Um, and to have multiple characters speak and to remind us of what this story and Starfleet and Star Trek really exist for. Pete, what time is it on the ship's chronometer? Why it's Fred time. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 10. Okay, I had a little problems with this episode, and it's mainly because the first half hour is a lot of talking, 
of course it started very very nice well not nice but impressive and nicely filmed and scene of the memorial for Arium, including the singing of Saru. So that was very nice. But then as soon as the data of uh, that Tilly gave about the fact that in the Daedalus file there was Michael Burnham's biometrics, from that onward it became a lot of talking and analyzing, first with the group around the sick bay bed and then later with the people from section 31 and then michael talking to giorgio in the in the corridor and then michael talking to leland after saru talked first to him and then okay then it got a bit more exciting when well burnham heard the story about her parents and got very angry with leland and then there was the talking between Burnham and Spock, and then again talking about their mousetrap, their plan. And then after that, they got to this uh, with a toxic uh, atmosphere. Then there is talking between uh, Burnham and Tyler, and, and then it really starts to get a little bit of action. I, I like the episodes more if there is a little action in between. And although Leland got floored, there was not so much action. Then we got more action, and uh, after that, it got a little confusing because the Red Angel wasn't some Burnham traveling back from the future, but it was Michael's mother. They assumed, because the data of Burnham were in this Daedalus file, they assumed she was the angel, but it was only a file. It, it was ne nowhere said that these biometric data were of the Red Angel. It was just in this file. And I think her mother having her biometrics, although from a child age, put them in that file as, as a marker to take care that, that they would know that it is real. One very nice quote from the episode was by Giorgio. I prefer a little totalitarian efficiency. Okay, that was all for now. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, this certainly is a talky episode, as he mentioned. Obviously, some action towards the end of the episode. Your thoughts, was the balance correct in this, in this warp drive intermix? I do think the balance was correct. We had the emotional... Uh, you know, farewell at the beginning, we set up the end of the episode in the middle and, and then it leaves us gasping for air, Matt, kind of like last week, gasping for air, Riam. <laughs> oh, I laugh and I cry, Pete. This notion, too, that Fred mentioned, this Giorgio line where she prefers that authoritarian efficiency. The, the totalitarian, remember, uh, from the Mirror Universe um, I don't know what to make of this character. I want to hate her and everything she represents, but the, the sexiness that, uh, Michelle Yeoh oozes in the role. I mean, gosh, that scene in engineering, she, she's likable. I don't know how they've created this character. Well, I think Michelle Yeoh is is probably the, the missing piece there just in terms of the sizzle that she brings. I continue to look at her and uh, had been looking at Leland. I think I'd vote for him, you know, vote for the true Leland being dead, regardless of whether we get hologram Leland or zombie Leland or whatever the future holds. Um, any little instance here of Giorgio, I continue to see through the lens of there is a Giorgio show coming. There is the Section 31 show coming. Uh, I know the plan is for it not to come out until after Discovery Season 3. So, of course, we have plenty of time before then. There's other Star Trek shows in the pipeline, whether it's Picard about to start shooting next month or the animated show or just other things that, that are farther along. But they must have had a sense with some of this to start to, to, start to add some sizzle to her because there's more story to tell whether they knew it was going to be a show or a short or a novel or a comic or whatever it might be. Um, and it, it would be interesting or it will be interesting, I guess that's the proper 
tends to put it in. It will be interesting to see how her decidedly unfederation take on things uh, is presented in that show. Well, if you can't get enough of the Matt and Pete show, you certainly have the opportunity to get more. Indeed, Pete, for those who head over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and help keep our ship afloat, there's all sorts of bonuses, goodies, uh, exclusive content, etc. All our little way of saying thank you to you. Everybody gets access to exclusive podcast content. There's all sorts of tiers from there. So we thank you again for checking that out. Pete, the greatest gift, though, is not one that you can find on Patreon. It's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,350 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word. Like it today. Matt, we're at the decidingly Star Trekian number of 447 <sighs> likes on uh, Facebook. Let's get that to an even 450. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back in the next couple of days talking some God Friended Me, talking some other geeky goodness. Pete, I don't know if that other thing, if that's coming out this week, next week, whenever it's going to be, but certainly some, some good secret stuff ahead. And, uh, of course, talking more Star Trek next weekend. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Did you just call me Poppy? <laughs>